Welcome to The Reframe. My name is Josiah Van Vliet. Today we're going to talk about immigration, prohibition, and abortion. And with a trifecta like that, uh, I want to give a little bit of a preamble. First and foremost, this is going to be a pro-choice podcast. Uh, if you don't want to hear that kind of thing, now's your chance. Turn me off. If you disagree with me about my conclusions, I'm not super interested. If you disagree with me about my facts or my inferences, that would matter to me. But if you just like coming into this and you're against choice, I don't want to hear it. I don't care. Uh, feel free to email me, but uh, we both know neither one of us is going to convince the other one of anything, so don't bother. The second thing, and this is actually sort of more important, is um, if you are a lady, you do not want to hear another guy talk about abortion I totally respect that men say too much about this subject women do not get enough of a vote about this subject which is the point of my podcast today however I as much as like I don't think you should have to listen to me I don't think you should have to care about my opinions um, I have them and I feel quite strongly about me and mine having choices and having their autonomy respected, and I have things that I want to say about it. Um, so I understand if you don't want to listen, that makes perfect sense to me. Please feel free to ignore me completely on the subject and move on with your life. But like I said, I've got strong feelings about this subject, but they are about how important autonomy and respect for women is. So um, I get you on that front. Um, with that, I'm going to move into the podcast a quick note before we get started with the meat of the thing i record in my bedroom it is the quietest place in my house um, i try and keep you guys away from street noise cat noise fan noise all kinds of things but uh, i'm of limited uh, acoustic separation from my environment and my upstairs neighbors are really walking around a bunch and i apologize but i gotta record this now so you're going to deal with some floor squeaks. I apologize. The story of prohibition. So I was a little surprised about this. I hadn't really looked into it. I care a lot about prohibition. I think it's a terrible idea. But the 18th Amendment outlawing the sale and distribution, but not ownership or consumption of alcohol, strikes me as really a beginning of a very bad path for the United States of America. And I'd never really looked into it. I had heard one story, which I'll get to at the end of the Prohibition section, but um, I, for this, did a little bit of reading and found a bunch of really interesting things. Prohibition had sort of three waves. The third wave led into the 18th Amendment. The first wave is happened between 1784 and 1861. It was sort of sparked by a book in 1784 called An Inquiry into the Effects of ardent spirits upon the human body and mind. This effort was mostly a religious effort, and uh, it came to an end with the Civil War. The second, the second wave of prohibition um, efforts range from 1872 to 1893. They come after the end of Reconstruction. Quick note, if you don't know how Reconstruction ended, it's super interesting. Basically, it was a as the efforts of Reconstruction ended, people turned away from the issues of racial equality and towards uh, trying to create temperance. A big part of why before this period of time, 
alcohol was a very widely consumed beverage. Lots of people drank alcohol a lot of the time because brewed and distilled spirits were sort of the only thing that you could be sure wasn't going to make you sick as a beverage. So a lot of the Johnny Appleseed story, for example, is about the fact that people drank hard cider a lot and not because they wanted to be drunk, but because the only beverage you could really trust was something that, again, had been either brewed or distilled. And so Applejack ends up being a super important part of American history as a safe beverage. But in this uh, second wave of attempted at prohibition and temperance, they created temperance fountains, basically trying to create the infrastructure for clean water as a way to keep people from going into saloons. And if you look at the wiki page for this, there's a bunch of like interesting, like there's a couple of leftover uh, temperance fountains, which is just interesting. The third wave, and this is the wave that ended with the 18th Amendment, ranges from 19, 1893 to... 1933. And this is really the story of the Anti-Saloon League, started by Reverend Howard Hyde Russell, uh, which is a great name. And I'm going to read a couple of things. Uh, these sources should end up in the sh show notes. These are somewhat lengthy quotes, but they're really interesting. Um, this is from a, a book that I found. The 1890s represents a crucial turning point that intensified the salience of ethnicity as an element of national identity, gave rise to the Americanization movement, and ultimately resulted in long-lasting restrictions on immigration. A massive influx of new immigrants, primarily from Southern and Eastern Europe, combined with the perception of the frontier having closed, accelerated industrialization, rural immigration, reoccurring economic distress, perceptions of urban disorder and disorganization, labor conflict, and radical political agitation diminished Americans' faith in the naturally absorptive powers of the American life and in a laissez-faire approach to immigration absorption. So too did the development of a distinctly racialized ideology that identified Anglo-Saxon descent with authentic American identity and place the new immigrants into inferior classifications. I apologize for the sentence construction there. It was not my fault. I did my best to read those commas clearly. It was a big list. But the thing that I find really interesting about this passage is that what this passage implies is that before the 1890s, the American culture really thought of itself as a melting pot. It thought of itself as the kind of place that new people could come into and become American. And that, and you can see from all of these issues that this is like the beginning of racialized understandings of immigration, which is a super important subject this week. I just find it fascinating to think about this country when it believed in the melting pot. That's just such an interesting idea that it used to and now it doesn't. This sort of fear of the country's inability to absorb other cultures without changing is the foundation of my argument for this podcast, right? So again, the country sort of changed its mind and felt like it could no longer safely absorb incoming immigration. It couldn't handle changing people into Americans when they showed up if they were different. This 
all sort of revolves around this sort of Americanization temperance movement. It touches on a lot of things. There's a huge amount of interconnects that makes this possible. But the focal point that I want to talk about is the Anti-Saloon League. And in this following quote, it talks about, and this is actually really short, I'll just read it. The Anti-Saloon League propaganda effectively connected beer and brewers with Germans and treason in the public's mind. And this is a specific example of what I'm talking uh, of the interconnects and this idea of immigration, because in the aftermath of World War One, the way that Germans drank and the fact that Germans owned beer breweries in the United States made this interconnect between this sort of racialized national identity problem that the 1890s started, connecting it with World War One, which was a horror show, unlike anything we've ever seen and the the German immigrant and so you have this nexus and there's a bunch of other stuff uh, also associated religious stuff racial stuff uh, violence against women the suffrage movement there's a lot that goes into this the 18th amendment I'm not talking about a bunch of it I just want to point it out um, so you have this sort of not just racial fear not just this natural national identity anxiety, but also this very specific, we were just at war with Germany and it was awful. And now they're moving here and drinking in this new and weird way. And so the Anti-Saloon League managed to get them associated with this temperance movement and the prohibition movement in a way that's rhetorically very powerful, right? Like there's this deep fear of what it means of that there's deep fear that what it means to be American will change if the immigrants come in. And that fear is tied to this very easy rhetoric of, look at these people who we were just at war with. They are different. They're drinking stuff we don't drink. They're building breweries to drink it. And they hang out in saloons. That turns out to be really important rhetorically. This next quote talks about the Anti-Saloon League because the saloon really was like the symbol of the temperance movement and and the effort towards prohibition uh the following quote has the phrase native american protestant in it and they do not mean what you think they mean i don't know i don't actually remember when this was written but uh i'm just going to read it those words don't feel right in my mouth and i apologize here's the quote the saloon was preeminently an urban institution for the small town native american protestant it epitomized the social habits of the immigrant population. The saloon was also a source of the corruption that he saw as the bane of political life. The Protestant native additionally reacted against the ethics of personal reciprocity on which machine politics was built. If it were, were to continue, the growth of urban communities, so ran the argument, would wreck the republic. It would lead to the supremacy of those people, quote, who gather its ideas of patriotism and citizenship from the low grog shop. Within the context of Protestant antipathy to urban and Catholic communities, the saloon appeared as the symbol of a culture that was alien to the character of American values. Anything that supported one culture necessarily threatened the other. The Anglo-Saxon stock is the best improved, hardiest, and fittest. If we are to preserve this nation and the Anglo-Saxon type, we must abolish saloons. Now you can see here 
from this quote that the people at the time of the effort to ratify the 18th Amendment, that drinking had become part of, right? It's, and it's interesting, it's also important that it's a vice, right? It's officially a vice. That, that, that this vice had, was the habit of the other, that the other was infecting us, and that we had to put a stop to it for the character of America not to change. The underlying reframe that I want to bring up here is that prohibition was a lot of things, and it was put into place for a lot of reasons. But the underlying emotional force that made it possible, and in fact, I think necessary, that it be a constitutional amendment, was this, the character of American values argument, right? It's, this isn't about whether or not people should or shouldn't drink. This is about whether or not America is the kind of place where people drink like that. Because what's going on here, I think, for the people of the early 20th century is they see themselves as Americans. And they see being American as a certain kind of thing. And if you change what it means to be American, then you change who those people think they are. And there is basically no limit to what someone will do to preserve their notion of who they are. And if you think about this in sort of normal contemporary situations, let's say you were the member of a fraternity or a sorority when you were in college, and you think of yourself as the kind of person who was in that frat or in that sorority. And after you get out, you, you keep the ring, you talk about your good old drinking days, whatever it is, right? And then someone comes along and changes the charter of your frat to be something wildly different. Um, they either include women and now it's some other thing, or they change the rules about whatever. What would that would do to you if you were in that situation is it would retroactively deny you access to that part of yourself. Like, I was a member of that frat, but now I can't say that I am because they changed what the frat is. And I don't want to be associated with the values that they've institu instituted. And you can see how upsetting that would be for somebody who was a real fanatic for whatever club member of the club that they were, whatever self-identifying thing that they had incorporated from their life into their conception of self. And now think about that at the national scale. Right. Think about what it would mean if, say, the country elected someone who was really abhorrent, someone who bragged about sexual assault, who lied all the time, who was the color of Cheetos. Right. It would hit you really hard to think that being an American now means having voted for him. Right. Because it, it would feel under the circumstances like you were somehow responsible because you had participated, and now the character of the country was at stake. You can see how that would be very upsetting for someone. That force of not wanting other people to determine what it means for you to be who you thought you were is sort of the reframe about prohibition. 
that's what made it possible for us to do such a stupid thing as outlaw alcohol. And I think it's at the core of what drives abortion as a debate. So if you look at the so-called pro-life arguments, there are three pro-life arguments that I, I want to talk about. And the first is just that they're pro-life, which is just clearly not felt the way that it should be if they actually cared about that, because it's not inconsistent to be pro-war, pro-death penalty, and against abortion. That's just not felt to be morally inconsistent, and it just doesn't hold together. And if abortion really is the terrible thing that it is, the best way to avoid it is to keep people from getting pregnant. And the best way to do that is with long-term birth control, which the opponents of abortion are also against. That one in particular rankles, right? And there's also just like the zygote is a person. And it's just clear that the way that people behave around issues of pregnancy, that that is not how people feel about the thing. Now, they may think that they believe any of these arguments, but it's clear from their behavior and from the, the power of their arguments and the sort of corners of what they say that this isn't really what's driving them. And I've been thinking about this for a long time. Abortion's been a sore spot since before I was born. Um, it's been an issue my whole life. Uh, we've been talking about it and fighting about it since long before I knew what it meant. And what I see from this, the people I will call the moralists, what I see from their perspective is, is a very strange thing has happened. And I'm going to have to go back in history to get the context for what I think has happened. Right? The moralists think that the moral character of the country is degrading and that the republic will fall because we're all you know, sleeping around in ways that we shouldn't or whatever they think. I honestly don't really care much. But here's what I think happened. So about 10,000 years ago, human beings invented agriculture. That created a very different uh, environment than the one that we evolved in for the most of the last 10,000 years up until maybe the 60s, but certainly the last 200 years. So you have from 10,000 years ago till 200 years ago, when if people were sexually promiscuous, if you slept around in the 1500s, the 1600s, or 4,000 years ago in ancient Babylon, what was going to happen was you were going to get people sick. You were going to get pregnant in ways that was going to disturb property rights. And you were going to get people killed. People were going to die if you slept around. And not just like the like syphilis way. You were going to like have people have babies by the wrong person or whatever. And people were going to kill each other because you slept around. And so what the moralists and what culture generally did is it created a series of just so stories that were so powerful that they had some hope of keeping teenagers from sleeping with each other. And that's where I think the sexual morality, so-called, of religion comes from, is that it is a cultural tool trying to keep a post-agricultural revolution society coherent. Um, because if you let teenagers do what they would like to do, 
again in the 1800s it's going to cause mayhem death and destruction like literally people are going to die and so you need to have some sort of way to change their behavior so that they don't do that stuff and that's why premarital sex was quote-unquote immoral it was immoral because you were going to cause real harm and what happened was and this is religion's ultimate problem with technology is that technology changed and we created methods medical interventions that we now live in a world in which if you are careful and lucky you can have as much sex with as many people as you want and nothing bad will happen and so the people who are not deeply entrenched in the moral culture that was created to prevent these problems if you don't if you're not really really religious you look around and think i really can just do whatever i want and it's going to be fine you can do anything you want sexually you can't do anything you want medically right you have to use protection you have to do things you have to be careful and you and you again have to be lucky to some degree but that lack of objective consequence gutted the sexual morality brought to America by Christianity. Because now the real consequence is gone. But the people entrenched in the institution of religion can't change quickly enough, right? Because if you look at the 1920s and the 1980s, right? The behavior patterns are wildly, wildly different around sex. Just totally unrelated. And a cultural institution like a religion with a, with a founding document and institutional structures and bureaucracy just can't change its mind about something as fundamental to its purpose as controlling the sexual behavior of its attendees. It can't change fast enough. And so what you have from the right, moral, these moralists, is an attempt to reimpose the objective consequences onto sex so that their moral consequences won't seem stupid. And they have the cart behind the horse. The other way around. They have the horse behind the cart. And it just doesn't work very well. It doesn't make any sense because they've misplaced and misunderstood their own purpose and their own their own reason for being was never to enforce a set of laws from another universe and an invisible man. It was always as a cultural tool to overcome the fact that human sexuality doesn't make a lot of sense in a contemporary environment. It doesn't make any sense after the agricultural revolution, frankly. And so you have, you have these people trying to undo and make illegal and make prohibited and make shameful all of these methods of making sex safe and making sex just making it safe and making it possible and making it not a problem because if sex doesn't cause a problem then christianity doesn't make a whole lot of sense because if you think about the story of genesis the entire reason that we don't live in eden anymore is that women can't be trusted with temptation. That's the 
foundational start of the Christian Bible. And so it is totally unsurprising to me that that cultural institution can't quite wrap its head around IUDs and barrier protection. And the fact that it doesn't really matter how many people you have sex with or when, as long as you use the medical interventions to keep all of the people involved safe. And so what you have is this old cultural institution with an animus at its core towards both sex, the verb, and women simultaneously, and in a very deeply linked way. There's this one thing in the whole panoply of medical interventions making sex a consequence-free activity that has good rhetoric, right? No one is going to win election fighting against condoms. No one's going to win elections campaigning against IUDs. It doesn't have any rhetorical flourish. It doesn't have any bite. It doesn't make any sense. But abortion has at its limits, infanticide, buried in it, at least rhetorically. But the point here is that much in the way that World War I and the fear of German sabotage gave rhetorical and emotional power to the arguments for prohibition, in a world where, you know, I'm sure that racism was rampant. I'm sure that immigration was a problem. I'm sure there were all of these things. But the thing that they actually managed to fight about with all of this energy about the the character of the country was this little piece that had real impact emotionally and rhetorically about World War I and the Germans. And I think that what you have powering the incessant senseless fight that we have about abortion is a similar thing and you get the rhetorical power of this like hint of infanticide and this threat to the core notions of Christianity that you get from the medical interventions making sex safe and you get people who cannot bring themselves to allow America to be the kind of place where women can do whatever they want sexually. And that is what I think truly motivates the so-called pro, pro-life people. I think that it is buried in their ideology that women cannot be trusted, that sex is fundamentally dangerous, and that they cannot tolerate permitting that sort of freedom around that subject for women. And it is the nexus of all of these things that makes abortion the last splinter they can't pull out. Because if they don't fight about women's sexuality and women's sexual freedom, then the country changes into a fundamentally unchristian place for them. And that is the only thing I have ever heard that really explains the sort of animus that women deal with about this issue. 
because it can't be that they're pro-life. They aren't. It can't be that they're just trying to stop abortions. They don't. And it can't be that a zygote is a person. It isn't. The only thing I see making sense out of pro-life movements, the only thing I see consistent about pro-life movements is that they do not like sex, they do not like women, and they do not want women free to do whatever they want with their bodies. It is a deeply challenging, threatening thing. And not just in principle, not just they think it's wrong, but they think it will change what kind of country we live in, and they cannot assent to it. They cannot give their permission. And it is that fundamental inability it's not even an inability. It is the fundamental changing of the character of the country that they will not tolerate. They will not accept it, and they will not stop fighting, even when none of their arguments actually make any sense. Because if they admit that abortions are the kind of thing that should be handled between women and doctors and women and doctors only, then they have admitted that their identity doesn't make sense and that they cannot be who they were and who they were taught to be. And that is the core of what I think is going on. And that's why you can't argue with them. That's why you can't debate with them. That's why they won't shut up and that's why they won't leave you alone. That's why I would like to protest at their headquarters. I would like to end this so that women can be free to do what they want to do with themselves. And that's ultimately the reframe. It's not about any of the stuff that it says on the tin. I think this is about Christian moralists unable to give themselves permission to give other people permission. Well, I hope you stuck through that. That's been in the back of my head for a really long time. I think it's super important. I really hope we can put this one to bed someday. I really wish women were allowed to be whoever they wanted to be. I really wish women were given the space and the freedom and the authority and respect to do whatever they wanted to do. And they, they aren't. And it makes me crazy. If you know me personally and you need a hand with this kind of thing, yeah, I'm there for you. This one really, really bugs me. And I don't even, I don't even suffer from it. And it still bothers me to the nth degree. Um, so this has been the reframe check out the show notes uh, I'll have links to where those quotes came from also check out my Patreon page uh, somebody up their numbers uh, so I'm getting paid like $25 a month to do this if you want to comment which I imagine some of you probably will please try and find uh, my Facebook page so that it can turn into a conversation amongst all y'all and not just between you and I in private um that's the reframe uh on facebook if you found this podcast you can probably find the page i started thank you for listening thank you for your support oh there's a national strike that's getting talked about for the 17th of february i'm giving some strong consideration to uh, calling out sick that day and going out and being seen not working don't buy nothing don't do nothing don't get paid let's let that guy know we do not want him as president. We will not put up with it. 
And I think I think we got a shot at shutting that that administration down, but we got to work at it, and uh, we've got to be seen because voting didn't get it done. Um, like I said, stay, stay safe and good luck.